welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Each week we delve deep with some of the brightest and most forward thinking, out of the box minds in health, consciousness, mindset, and spirituality. This show inspires our listeners to improve their body and mind, and our intention is to fuse and unlock the conscious warrior and shift the balance in the current paradigm. You know, so so we are these, you know, object-like entities, but we're we're unfolding through time, much like a piece of music unfolds through time. Is the human species some kind of a genetic experiment? You know, where where did some alien super civilization set the conditions on the planet in certain ways that would be likely to foster? Uh, the emergence of, you know, hominids, the emergence of complex brains, the emergence of, uh, of intelligence, ultimately. Hey, what is up, everyone? This episode was a special one, as it was recorded on the late, great Terence McKenna's 70th birthday, and his brother Dennis very kindly gave us his time to record a truly epic podcast. Dennis's brother, Terence McKenna, was truly one of the first pioneers on speaking out about psychedelics, consciousness, life, social structure, and so much more. But he was just so good at explaining the human experience, and he had such a good way of articulating his words. And the way he speaks, it was sort of like a massage for your mind and your thoughts. So in honour of this great man's birthday, I just wanted to play a quick snippet from one of Terence McKenna's talks. We have gone sick by following a path of untrammeled rationalism, male dominance, attention to the visible surface of things, uh, practicality, bottom lineism. We have gone very, very sick. And the body politic, like any body, when it feels itself to be sick, it begins to produce antibodies or strategies for overcoming the condition of dis-ease. And the 20th century is an enormous effort at self-healing. Phenomena as diverse as surrealism, body-piercing, psychedelic drug use, sexual permissiveness, jazz, experimental uh, dance, rave culture, tattooing, the list is endless. What do all these things have in common? They represent various styles of rejection of linear values. The society is trying to cure itself by an archaic revival, by a reversion to archaic values. So when I see people manifesting sexual ambiguity or scarifying themselves or showing a lot of flesh or dancing to syncopated music or getting loaded or violating ordinary canons of sexual behavior, I applaud all of this because it's an impulse to return to what is felt by the body. The world is a living mystery. Our birth, our death, our being in the moment, these are mysteries. They are doorways opening on to unimaginable vistas of self-exploration, empowerment, and hope for the human enterprise. And our culture has killed that, taken it away from us, made us consumers of shoddy products and shoddier ideals. We have to get away from that. And the way to get away from it is by a return to the authentic experience of the body. The hour is late. The clock is ticking. We will be judged very harshly if we fumble the ball. We are the inheritors of millions and millions of years of successfully lived lives and successful adaptations to changing conditions in the natural world. Now the challenge passes to us, the living, that the yet-to-be-born 
may have a place to put their feet and a sky to walk under. There is nothing as powerful, as capable of transforming itself and the planet as the human imagination. Let's not sell it straight. Let's not whore ourselves to nitwit ideologies. Let's not give our control over to the least among us. Rather, you know, claim your place in the sun and go forward into the light. The tools are there. The path is known. You simply have to turn your back on a culture that has gone sterile and dead and get with the program of a living world and a re-empowerment of the imagination. So that was Terence McKenna just speaking there and you can find the full audio and video to that speech in the show notes of this podcast. And the interesting thing about Terence McKenna that actually many people forget about him is that he was actually speaking about many things that have actually only just come forward now in the human experience which is very interesting. So anyway please check that out and all of Terence's speeches are available on YouTube. And there's no better person to be having on the having a conversation with on Terence McKenna's birthday than his brother Dennis and that is why this one is a special one. So Dennis McKenna has spent decades doing deep academic and personal research on consciousness and psychedelics and Dennis is also the author of The Brotherhood of the Scream and Biss and the book's all about his adventures with his brother the late Terence McKenna. So anyway this was a great episode and Dennis will certainly be coming back on the podcast in the future. As you will see in this conversation it really started to warm up and it just went over so fast and we both felt there was so much more we wanted to talk about and cover but the time just ran away. So anyway Dennis will certainly be back on in the future but before we jump with this conversation please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast as it really helps more people find this thing. And please tell your friends about the podcast and please help us out by sharing the episodes each week on your social media pages and please also check out the new little trailers that I've been creating for each episode on the same Facebook page and it would be so cool if you could also share them as well anyway enough of the plug Dennis McKenna enjoy how was your time in Peru Dennis was it good it was good. It was uh, it was busy. Uh, you know, I've been traveling so much lately that uh, it's it's been taking a lot out of me. You know, I stopped in Peru on the way back from the World Ayahuasca Conference in Brazil, uh, which was in in Rio Branco, Brazil, which was a fantastic event. I mean, it was quite amazing. But it was six days long, and that's long for any conference. Uh, you know, especially when the like the heat is like in mid nineties every day. Although we're in the air conditioned auditorium, thank God. But it was it was just a bit much. But there was lots of good stuff shared there. It was a beautiful conference in that way. But you know, maybe too much. Uh, you know, <laughs> just yeah. It, I mean, six days. I don't care how how. Uh, interesting the topic it just gets a little exhausting but uh it was really good i was very glad i went uh so yeah it's another amazing experience that's what it is and that's the that's what life is all about just exploring all these amazing experiences dennis and dennis sorry and uh yeah i was just going to say it to you there dennis like it, it truly is like an absolute honor to have you with us here today it's like especially on what would have been like Terence's seventieth birthday. Just it makes like an episode like this just more special because it's it's like the things like what you've explored in life, you and Terence. Like it's so much so beautiful. It's like all the work that you and your brother do have you've explored together, and all that love and knowledge will be like forever for other generations, and that's an incredible feeling to have. Yeah, and and thank you, thank you for the kind words. Yeah, he's uh, he's very much on my mind today, and a lot of people's minds. You know, uh, he's like he would have been seventy today, and so you know, it is his seventieth birthday. He's just not here, or not quite here, to uh, you know, to to celebrate it. But in some ways, Terence. He's achieved this weird kind of immortality in cyberspace. So a lot of people, 
myself included, feels like, you know, well, he's never really gone away. <laughs> you know, he's start part of the conversation. And uh, uh, I'm grateful for that because we need, we need his insights, his wisdom, even though he has been gone for 16 years, you know, what his thoughts and insights into the current cultural crisis is, you know, as timely as ever, it seems like. And so that's something, I guess that's a good thing about cyberspace. You know, his ideas will, will live forever there as long as there is an internet. Um, hopefully that will yeah, well, to be honest, Dennis, I think we're going to go beyond the internet, and I think we'll beyond into like one huge collective consciousness where the information will all be joined together. So, Terence's vision and dreams will like never die; they'll when they'll always be in all of us, and that's what I like to think in the future. And I think we are we are all far beyond the internet in my eyes. Yes, I think that's where it's headed, for sure. The internet is the Model T version, the crude version of this global consciousness that is uh, that is emerging. And, you know, it's about time. Uh, in fact, it may be too late. That's what concerns me, because, you know, we it, it needs to go in this direction. We need to join... We need to make connections between people and cultures and places and everything. And we have the tools. The Internet is the most fantastic thing we've ever invented for making connections. We're creating kind of this global brain, you know, that's hyper-connected. Uh, but then if you, you know, so we have that. That's happening. But then if you look at the current political situation uh, at least in the states uh, there there's plenty of reason to be concerned and it, it seems that these tools that we have in some ways have created barriers between people more than they have connected people it seems like a paradoxical result but yet you look around the world it's not just the states we're sort of the you know with the last election we're sort of the latest instantiation of that but if you look at countries it, it, it you know what's going on in europe with the immigrants and so on it's all about we you know we are seem to be concerned with the uh you know cleaving to our tribes you know our little cultural our cyber tribes not really crossing those bridges but sort of retreating into our own own tribal bubbles and uh I think that's not good, you know, I mean, because it, it fosters fear, for one thing, of everyone who is not like us, everyone who doesn't think like us, and, uh, you know, that's that's not going to work for the future. You know, we have to make connections, we have to evolve together into whatever this future is, and, and you know, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, we we can get into into politics as as much as you like. I, I don't. I mean, but I don't want to put a bad spin on this. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not sure what you wanted to talk about. So uh, it's just it's just uh, you know on my mind and a mind of a lot of us here in the states. I mean, this is there's never been anything like it in American politics. The election of Trump and. <laughs> At his people, you know, they're, uh, That's what there's I, nothing, nothing like it. But Dennis, as well, before when you were when you were talking about you were saying about how the elections are on the on the mind of the human ethos, you're completely right. It is, but I think it's it's very interesting because we're living in a time like you mentioned before where it's it is on the mind of everyone now. But the thing, the beautiful thing is, is that we have these connections with the internet and we can connect with all these different people all over the world, and that will like spark up these new ideas and. Just want to mention as well, Dennis, and what I love about you is what you're doing as well with your work. You're actually you're very open to new ideas, and you and you're not invested too much in one direction, and you understand that nobody has it all figured out, and nobody does have it all figured out. Yes, well, yeah. I mean, if I uh, if I understand one thing, it's that nobody has it figured out, you know, and including me, and including. I mean, anyone tells you that they haven't figured out, that's a sure sign that they're completely clueless, you know, because I think I think part of the 
you know, what we have to do is recognize that we really uh, don't have it figured out. Every person has a very small part of the whole picture. And, you know, this is something that ayahuasca, you know, as my primary plant teacher and other psychedelics, but ayahuasca particularly always reiterates to me, remember how little you know, don't don't get a big head because you don't know anything, nobody knows anything, which to me is not depressing. It's actually kind of exciting because it means that there's a great deal left to be learned and understood, but we should always sort of proceed in the light of the limitations on our knowledge, you know, the idea that we have a handle, uh, you know, on the big picture. I don't think we do at all. And, uh, you know, people that, uh, you know, I mean, this is, this is the problem with organized religion and, and these sorts of things. They, they all want to tell you, you know, yeah. we have the way, the truth, and the light. We have the one truth. No, you don't. And there is no one truth. Yeah. And, if you, you know, if you want me to buy that, then, you know, it's a shell game. I'm not buying it. I mean, you know, people have to learn to uh, think for themselves. And, and religions don't encourage that. They're quite threatened by that. They want, uh, you know, they want people to accept a ready-made set of answers, uh, which are... Uh, you know, you look at them uh, very deeply, and you can see they—they they are not answers at all. They're just a propaganda, essentially. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I was going to say, Dennis, as well. I, I I see that quite a bit in the scientific areas as well, because I really think that a lot of science, like a lot of scientists, should be more open to new possibilities. And I think if they really did open up the creative consciousness, just like religions as well they would start seeing that there's many other possibilities out there and they may even discover something more even amazing than the truth that they believe in the mind already. And I think it's about being open. And when you do open up open up, and you have you allow your imagination to run free, that allows you to do real science, in my opinion. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. I think in some ways science is also guilty of uh, a lot of what we're, what we're uh, you know, accusing religion of. And in many ways, science is... A kind of religion <coughs> you know ideally it shouldn't be like that I mean a science ideally is one of the most powerful tools that we have to ask questions of nature in a in a kind of a structured way and get answers back that are meaningful that are verifiable I mean ultimately science is about the search for truth right that's really what science should be in kind of the ideal sense. But in practice, science is an institution like everything else. And so there's, you know, what happens to institutions? They become ossified and rigidified. And if you don't conform to the norms, then you're marginalized or even uh, ex exorcised out of it. And so science can be uh, very... Uh, dogmatic and unopen to new ideas as well, but supposedly it's got a self-correcting mechanism, which is something that religions don't have. It has the ability to, you know, ideally science frames hypotheses and how things are, and then they test those against reality or, you know, experiment, and then they take that data and say, well, does it support the theory or not, you know? Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, revise the theory or throw it out. That's ideally how it's supposed to work. But in this global world, and science is so tied up with politics and institutions and finances and, and everything else, that it's very hard for a person in, a, in an academic or you know, research environment, an academic scientist to practice pure science. I mean, the age of the, you know, gentleman scientist, the age of the 19th century is, is long gone. So now I think that science often loses sight of what their real business is. And, you know, they think science is about you know, prestige and writing papers, going to conferences, having grants, all these, these are all important things, but that is not what science is. Though that's what science does in the context of, <clears throat> you know, a global 
a global culture. That's not what science is. And, you know, I've often said, maybe again, being cantankerous or something or reflecting my own background, I often say that scientists should be required to, in their training, should be required to take courses in the philosophy of science. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, definitely. Which is something that forces them to think about what they're doing and what is really going on here and forces them to think about the process of discovery, the process of science. Many, many scientists can go through their whole careers. They can master, you know, incredibly complex things. So they can run the machines, they can crunch the numbers, they can do all that, but they never actually reflect on what they're doing, you know. And so they're not scientists, they're talented technicians, you know, and and they end up being technicians and not scientists because they never really step back from it and say, what are we doing here in terms of the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of understanding. And that's disappointing to me, but it's mm. it's the way it is. I, th- I think, um, Dennis, I think a lot of people in like uh, the religious field and in the scientific field, they really do um, mis- misinterpret both sets of truths in both sides because in religion, a lot of people do find a lot of faith and a lot of comfort but whereas the actually in within science they'll actually back this up with like factual evidence and and results and and they're constantly constricted by like the rules and laws and regulations and it's not unpill proven but whereas i think they need each other as much as they don't need each other because right now i think faith and factual evidence both need to be entwined to live an optimal life to live a life of pure pure love you can't have just like one ideology where someone just in a religion based in society where they think that's it that's all my whole limited thinking is just based upon this thinking of um, religion but then again you can't just have this study of actual facts and there needs to be there's some sort of faith there needs to some sort of like like guidance from within or from with from wherever you feel and you need to have right. something different well, and i think that's what faith and science need to start to come together a bit more yeah, I think I uh, I uh, I hear what you're saying. I, uh, I I sort of am anti-faith in a certain ways, you know, in the sense that it depends on how you define it. But <clears throat> as opposed to being anti-belief, I'm not anti-belief, but I'm anti-faith. If by that you mean a set of principles or pronouncements or perceptions that are just laid down you know, without any particular evidence that's just, this is what you're supposed to accept if you want to be a good Catholic or, or Jew or, or Muslim or whatever. If you want to be a good uh, member, good Dogen, as my father used to call them, a member in good standing of the religion, you're called on to accept these articles of faith without any evidence. And science is big on evidence, right? And I think evidence is important and uh, and then and that's the distinction between belief and faith in my mind. You can believe a number of things about the way the world is, but if they're based on evidence, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily true. But it means that they have a probability of being true. You know, yeah. the sun rises in the east; it always has, as far as we know. So I believe it probably will tomorrow, but <laughs> it may not, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, that's also the beautiful thing about science. When it's practiced or understood properly, you can only disprove hypotheses. You can never prove them, right? Uh, scientists constructs models about the way things are, hypotheses, if you will. They're always provisional, New data may overturn your hypothesis next week or next month or a century from now, you know, and we see this in the evolution of science. There are paradigms that arise in scientific discovery and they last a certain time and then they often are kind of abruptly turned on their head and then you have to develop a new paradigm. So that's part of this self-correcting mechanism but in science, if you understand it properly, you never reach a point where you say, I have proven this. This is absolutely 
solid uh, knowledge or information. There are scientists who will say that, mm-hmm. but they're deluded. They are misunderstanding what it is to do science. You can only develop models that you know fit the data as far as we know, a fit observation as far as we know, knowing that they're provincial. You know, and so new data may completely change our picture of the world, and it has numerous times. You know, if you look at physics, you know, Newtonian physics, and then Einsteinian relativistic physics, quantum mechanics, all of these things, uh, you know, the actual picture of the way the world is at the physical level. It's very hard to understand for most people, quantum physics and all this. And in the day-to-day world, it's not even, you know, that useful in a certain way. And not for the layman, you know. We, I mean, Newtonian physics works perfectly well, and it fits in with common sense and our observation. But, you know, if you look at a deeper level, you see this is just a, I don't know what you call it, a gloss, a superficial view. At yeah. the deeper level, it's the world doesn't look like that at all. So again, this is part of the the power of, of scientific, you know, that it is self-correcting when it's allowed to be. And, and I completely agree with you. Scientists tend to be, you know, a little rigid about, uh, you know, their ways of knowing. There is a tendency to say the scientific way is the only way, the only valid way to understand the world. Uh, and it depends on what you mean by that. But, you know, it's the only valid way uh, to understand the world. And, and so you exclude all the other ways of knowing that are not necessarily scientific, yeah. but, but they're not invalid. You yeah. know, some, some things you just can't measure with science. And, they, you know, and, and scientists should remember that. Yeah. And that's, why, that's where, you know, the regular ingestion of psychedelics will is useful because it reminds us again how little we know and that's something that people should always keep in mind especially scientists you know and you know yeah yeah, yeah I, I liked how you said that Dennis because it, it is it seems to be that like in life you, you can't be it's so hard to measure certain things to that to, the, to that fully end point and I think what you were saying there I loved how you said you always need to be willing to adapt and always willing to change and willing to be open to these new ideas but Dennis something I wanted to um, touch on with you as well and I, I really do find interesting and I know that you touched on this in your the, uh, one of your talks at the free mind conference and you were talking about the complexity of the brain and how the human brain is like undoubtedly one of the best technologies this planet has ever seen. And when you were doing mm-hmm. that talk, I thought it was really fascinating. But I was just going to say, yes, I just thought it was really fascinating how you're talking about how the human brain is just so complex. And the brain is, if you we do really do think about it, the human brain is, is one of the best, undoubtedly one of the best technologies this planet has ever seen. Uh, yeah, although I wouldn't call it a technology exactly because we didn't invent it, right? I mean, in other words, a technology... It's something that's part of the natural world. There's no doubt that it is, uh, you know, one of the most complex objects in the universe, in our known universe, and it's characterized with this hyperconnectivity and all that stuff. It's very complex, no doubt, uh, and you know, it's an amazing thing. I mean, it has, you know, squeezed into this three pounds of spongy pink matter is the is the power of, you know, a hundred supercomputers, you know, and the stuff that we do every day without even thinking about it is something that, you know, a robot of artificial intelligence or something would find very, very difficult. You know, the simple act of walking across the room and picking up a glass of water and drinking it, that's an incredibly complex thing for, uh, for a robot to do. And we do it all the time. We don't even think about it. So I don't, uh, you know, I certainly respect the human brain very much. But I also think that, you know, this idea that it's the most complex object in the universe, I'm sort of not, I'm sort of getting beyond that because I've been reading about neural networks and things like this. And neural, neural networks show up everywhere in nature. 
and you know this this comes up in the context of plant intelligence and you know the intel the whole Gaia notion that the the whole planet is in some way an intelligent entity that regulates itself. Brains are overrated in some ways. It doesn't have to be a brain for there to be intelligence. Plants are intelligent, and in the in the true sense, this used to be a notion that was scoffed at. Now there's too much data to dismiss it. They're not intelligent the way we are, but they do have the ability even to plan and respond to their environment, to optimize their relationships with the environment, to remember, to, you know, they have a communication with the rest of the environment, which is a molecular communication, largely. That's why all these plant compounds, including the psychotropic ones, that's how plant, that is the language of plants. So intelligence, rather than brains, are something to look at. Forests are intelligent, and they regulate themselves in a very intelligent way, and they're, they're connected by these root and, and mycelial networks under under the ground, you know, you don't see those things, but that's like the nervous system of a forest in a certain way. And there are just as many connections in that kind of a network as there are in the human brain. So again, the idea that you have to have a complex brain to be intelligent is that that, that notion gets toppled (laughs) as well. So, you know, it seems like every place we look, you know, the human human beings have a, a almost an inborn, um, you know, desire to think that we're somehow special. You know, we're yeah. somehow superior and more complex, more intelligent, more clever, this and that. Mm-hmm. Actually, no, you know, we're not. I mean, and and it, this is part of our. This is part of our issue, I think, part of a big problem in, in global consciousness right now, or our perception of ourselves, is, is the we're separated from nature, you know, and we're not. We're part of nature, and, and you know, religion, especially the Judeo-Christian traditions, has all along been telling us that, you know, we're, you know, nature exists for us to use and dominate. I think that's really kind of the sickness of the Western mind, and that's what created the the situation that we face now. You know, our refusal to relate to nature, you know, to understand that we're part of it, we're not running the show, we need to work in compatibility, in mm-hmm. symbiosis is the biological term with nature. You know, rather than exploiting it, it's not something that you know exists for us to deplete and and destroy, which is what we're rapidly doing. And I think you have to have a shift in global consciousness before you can really begin to address those problems. And that's what the plant teachers are kind of desperately trying to wake us up to. You know. Yeah. Uh, it was a, that was a great answer, by the way, Dennis. And um, there was so much in there. I was trying to decipher out. But um, one of the things when you were talking about the um, the human brain, the, like the intelligence in talking about the human brain, it's interesting to me because, from my, through my understanding, it seems to be that the human brain and intelligence seems to be maybe, from my understanding, it seems to be like two separate entities in a, in a way. And I'll explain what I mean because mm-hmm. it seems to be that um, if you look if you look through life now, we've created so much technology. And a lot of technology is far more intelligent, far more intelligent than the human. However, the human brain, to me, seems a lot more, still a lot more supple and a lot more flexible than a lot of uh-huh. technology. And I was actually reading a book as well. I don't know if you've read this book, but it's a brilliant book, and it was um, called "Age of the Spiritual Machines" it's by Ray Kurzweil. Yes, yes, I have read it. Yeah, yeah. it's really yeah. interesting because yeah. he was actually talking about in that book how how on this planet now we have all this amazing technology. And he was talking about how what I, what I was just saying before about how certain computers are um, more far intelligent than certain areas of the, certain areas. Sorry, far more intelligent than the um, in certain areas in the human brain. But however, the the current um, 
the current computers in the world are still simpler than the human brain in that he was talking about how they're still actually about, uh, I think he was talking about like a million times simpler still and that, that just blows my mind. Yeah, well, yeah, computers are very good at certain things, you know, uh, that the human brain is not. I mean, like crunching numbers and this sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, <sighs> This is a this is a tricky area to discuss because yeah, what really constitutes intelligence, you know, mm -hmm. you can you can take deep blue and put deep blue up against a master chess player, or now even a master go player, and four out of five times it will beat the human. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Is that intelligence though? Yeah, you it's know? interesting. I like that. I mean, it's it's an ability to crunch enormous amounts of data in a very short time come up with a strategy and maybe that's a kind of intelligence i'm not sure i'm not sure but you know uh sorry oh, sorry Dennis. it's just, tricky <laughs> yeah i just yeah. i just want to see it like like um does a machine though does it ha does it have that sense of a uh, purpose like individuality does it have like the idea of love does it have ideas does it have create creative thoughts does it understand the concept of beauty and art it's like these are very complex like things that these, the human, the human these, oh. yeah these are the key questions yeah, these yeah. are the key questions you're asking and i don't think we can say yeah. you know i've often said though you know uh, you you see right now in neuroscience of course the you know, the sort of the holy grail of neuroscience for this century is to figure out how do these brain processes that we can measure and see what's going on, we can open windows into the brain using fMRI and other neuroimaging techniques so we can watch in real time while the brain is having a mystical experience or remembering something or doing a mathematical equation and so on you can you can look at what parts of the brain are activated in real time using these technologies but that that does not cross the the gap between your subjective experience of having this mystical experience or whatever you're undergoing and the parts of the, you know, you see what I mean? We're still yeah. looking at the brain from the outside, not the inside. How do we bring those things together? And these questions, can we, you know, uh, I mean, one way, maybe, uh, there's going to be a lot of focus on, our, on intelligence. And I think artificial intelligence, you know, that's one of the, ch if we want to really understand consciousness, or one way to approach it is, to try to build uh, something that is conscious, to try to build an AI that yeah, yeah. really is conscious. You know, and then we would understand a lot about consciousness. I don't know if it's possible, you know, but it's certainly a goal. And then, but then if you build an AI that's actually yeah. conscious, yeah. that could be a very dangerous thing, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> Because if it's not only conscious, but smarter than we are, and you know more perceptive, it's it's a fairly short uh, path for for that consciousness to you know diagnose the problem. And the problem is that there are all these monkeys running all over the planet, <laughs> like ants. And you know if we just eliminate those, we'll, yeah. we'll be fine. So. <laughs> So we have to build things like, as Kurzweil talks about too, we have to build things like compassion mm -hmm. and a love for humans and, and things like that into uh, the AIs, or they may just turn on us. There's a very good possibility that they will. Uh, you guys probably saw the movie uh, Ex Machina. Yes, I, I love that film. Yeah, it's it's really, one of my favorite films. Huh? It's really good. That, that brings it. That is an excellent film. I mean, that brings a lot of these issues in focus, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and I, I don't think that, um, you know, I mean, I mean, that's just one example of a lot of these technologies that we're mm -hmm. able to manipulate: genetic engineering, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, you know, all of these technologies are very edgy and potentially quite dangerous you know and yeah. 
I don't think you can ban them. You can't say, you know, but what we have to do is become, we're very clever. We're very clever about these things, but we're not wise. This is the task. We have to get, we have to become as wise as we are clever, right? Uh, we can figure stuff out, but we have to establish, we have to develop a moral an ethical dimension in which we make our decisions how to deploy these technologies, you know, and in some, sometimes the, the right answer is don't do it, you know, step back from it. We can do it, but should we do it? This is not a question that's asked very much, yeah. you know, because, uh, you know, we tend to get carried away with our own cleverness, you know, and, that's a problem for us, I think, as a species. We've got to focus on wisdom. We have to learn, we have to become, we have to wise up, essentially. Uh, and then we can use these technologies in a more life-affirming way. Yeah, definitely. Dennis, when you were talking about building AI there as well, and, and it was interesting because when when CRISPR posed the question, are you there, like, does like the machine, does the machine love, does it feel... I was actually thinking in my head there, maybe it does because maybe we are already the machines. And by Chris proposing that question to you, maybe that's already a machine proposing the question to you. Do we love? Do we feel? So we already, we already could be the machines proposing these questions. Well, yeah. I mean, you're getting into some pretty deep, <laughs> you know, philosophical waters here. Do we love? Do we feel? Well, uh you know, our subjective impression is that we do, yeah. you know, and maybe that's good enough looking at it from the outside. Is there any way to measure that from the outside? You know, that's, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the tricky part about all this. I mean, and you know, and that, that leads into another, you know, sort of riff is the idea that, uh, you know, as we say, as you say, we are really complex machines. Yeah. In some ways, we're made out of, well, I often say in my talks, we're made out of drugs, in yeah, fact. Yeah. That's why drugs work, because we're biochemical engines that run on drugs. That's what neurotransmitters, hormones, enzymes, all these things are essentially drugs, but they're put together in a more or less coherent way in space-time that ends up being looking like, you know, a person, an organism, or whatever. And it's deceptive, because we look at a person or an organism, it looks like an object. Actually, it's a process. You know, it's something that unfolds through time. It's, it's, it is, you know, when it, when metabolism ceases, it becomes much less interesting. You know, so, so we are these you know, object-like entities, but we're we're unfolding through time, much like a piece of music unfolds through time. You know, and uh, on a, a score of music on a sheet of paper is not very interesting until somebody plays it, right? And so that's that's what we are. Um, the but. Well, actually, I lost my train of yeah. thought. Yeah, no, no, oh, Dennis. so many beautiful thoughts there, Dennis. Yeah, there, really was, there, was, there was, Dennis. There was absolutely loads. And Dennis, just to throw something out there as well, because I would have regretted if I didn't if I didn't ask you this question. But before as well, you were talking about how um, we're talking about the human brain. You said we didn't create it. And you were at, you, you did touch on like it was from an, like come from like an evolutionary standpoint. But I was actually just thinking there in my head, do you think it could be a possibility that the human brain was developed by like someone else? Well, aliens, yeah. you mean? Yeah, Some, yeah. Well, it's possible. You know, it's possible. I don't think we need to postulate that. But, it, you know, it, it's certainly possible. But then this is the question. Okay, your hypothesis is the brain, you know, that yeah, essentially I think where you're going is, is the human species some kind of a genetic experiment, you know, where, where, where did some alien super civilization set the conditions on the planet in certain ways that would be likely to foster uh, the emergence of, you know, hominids, the emergence of complex brains, the emergence of, uh, of intelligence, ultimately. You know, how would you test that? How would you answer that question? Yeah. Something, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. 
Well, I, I'm asking you. All right. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'm not too sure, but something that just sparked in my mind there is something that we'll maybe attest it from. I mean, it's not going to be. This is not going to be certain, but in term like from looking from an outside perspective, like the, putting the human goggles on now, looking at looking at my life and looking at the whole human existence so far on this planet of what we know so far. It's very interesting because if we look at um, the brain in terms of like the evolutionary time of how mm. fast it, how fast, um, like sort of say using so just using um, as a reference point, using like a natch, um, an evolutionary standpoint. Right. It's, it's certainly clear to say that the the human brain is developed so quick over a very short time of short time right. period that we can analyze, and that's what that's what we are saying anyway. But, sorry to interrupt as well, but couldn't that as well be like the introduction of different technologies throughout the ages as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, one of the conundrums, one of the puzzling things about human evolution, neural evolution, is this explosive expansion of the human brain over two million years. You know, it's tripled inside. Well, and you know my answer to this. It's it's that I think that these psychedelics were actually catalysts for this, yeah. catalysts in the discovery of language and cognitive abilities, and I think it was a you know, a feedback interaction that led to this. But I think that psychedelics, mushrooms probably were at the origin of, you know, this key event that took place at some point, uh, probably a series of events over time. But but the abil- our ability to associate images and sounds with meaning, with significance, that's the basis of language, and that's one thing. That's a characteristic of psychedelic experiences. You look at something that may be trivial, you know, on the surface of it, but you look at it and you can perceive profound meaning and significance to that. And that's it. That's that's the connection. Once you have that, then you've got the basis of language, and then it unfolds from there. So... So that's the thing. Well, yeah, that that reminds me what I what I was going to say previously. You know, talking about these uh, these complex things about how do we know what we know? You know, there's mm-hmm. good reason to think that, or you know, we uh, are uh, we create a model of reality. You know, and we live inside that model. You know, it's not the real world. You know, it, the real world is unknowable. What we do is we construct a model that makes sense. We take in all this data coming from the outside through our sensory neural interface. We associate that with internal processes, associations, memories, and so on. And we sort of extrude this model of reality, the reality hallucination, I call it, that we live inside. So in some sense, you know, there's discussion about do we live in a simulation, all that, the whole matrix idea. Well, I don't know about as a race, but individually, yes, we do live in a simulation. We We live in a simulation that our brains create so that we can navigate uh, and, you know, a lot of what the brain does in terms of its interaction with the with the external world is it, it sets up gates. It's not about receiving information. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's partly about that, but it's about keeping a lot of information out of the realm of our perception. Otherwise, it would be too confusing, you know. So the brain has gating mechanisms, filtering mechanisms, and that's a lot of you know, what is involved in this creation of this model of reality, if you want to, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah, definitely before as well, Dennis, when you were touching on about how you were saying about how psychedelics may be the cause of like this evolutionary process, it's quite interesting because we all look, all look out throughout time. It seems to be like in the human history, we all, all, all throughout time, we get these like, get these, the human experience gets these like downloads or like a boost of consciousness. And obviously when you were talking about obviously the, the role of plants, being played in this development as well obviously plants could definitely obviously be a, a huge part of that as well and it's very mm-hmm. interesting, it's very interesting to me because it's how a lot of people obviously when we do think of like plants we sometimes think like a lot of people just think plants is not as te- not uh, not intelligent but plants mm-hmm. are very interesting and what i really find interesting about how they've actually 
it seems to me that they've developed a way or a technology to communicate with other organisms and it seems to be that these plants even have their own reason and their own agenda as well yes yes they do and uh yeah i mean they do in terms of their you know immediate their interactions with the uh, rest of the environment and and uh, you know through these molecular messengers right i mean that that's why uh, you know you i mean plants make an enormous amount of organic compounds of great diversity because they've mastered photosynthesis right and so they're they're master chemists the language of plants is through chemistry and they they you know they uh interact with everything in their environment from bacteria and fungi in the soil to insects herbivores and and that includes us and some of these compounds happen to resemble neurotransmitters you know and 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 in fact sometimes they're identical to neurotransmitters so they can hit a target in a mammalian nervous system and have interesting things happen so that's the way the plant you know uh, can essentially communicate with us uh, in a in a fairly you know, as plant teachers, and I, I think that plant, I think that we underestimate plant consciousness. If you look at ayahuasca, for example, the way that it's essentially taken over the world, rapidly spreading through the world, is because it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's not a scientific notion that I, but I sometimes say it's it's like an ambassador from Gaia, from the you know the plant, the mind of the planet, trying to beat the monkeys over the head and get us to wake up. I yeah. mean, the main message of ayahuasca is wake up, you monkeys. You know, wake up to the fact that you're not running things. and In fact, you're wrecking things mm -hmm. to a great extent. So I see that as part of the co-evolutionary process. You know, our, our use of these plants, any plant that's useful, doesn't have to be a psychoactive plant, any plant that's useful to humans, that's a kind of a symbiosis, uh, you know, an association that you can form. Yeah. And who's, who's manipulating who here? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly something I wanted to ask as well. <laughs> um, yeah. Are just, we growing corn or is corn using us to yeah. spread, you know? And same with ayahuasca because plants, they like to grow. They like to spread. And maybe we're just unwitting tools of the plant kingdom. Yeah, exactly, Dennis. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think as well comes down to um, the fact that these plants, like no matter what, they'll want to survive for whatever generation that comes a lot comes across. And right yes. now we're actually destroying more rainforest. Now I think it's three football fields every thirty twenty seconds or something. Something unbelievably complex and fascinating, and it's scary. So scary to see that these plants might be wiped out of existence, but. The fact that even ayahuasca now has been grown in various different parts of the world is like it's like this plant has its own survival mechanism, and, and yeah, it's, exactly. it's it's very exactly. interesting. And it has figured out. I mean, it has managed to escape from the Amazon where it originated, and now it's all over the world. And it escaped with a little help, you know, from humans. But and I, I guess I can claim part of the credit for that. Yeah. Be the, first one to bring uh, ayahuasca to Hawaii but but you know I was the unwitting tool of the plant you know in a certain sense I mean a willing tool but you know it was never I mean when I brought uh, Banisteriopsis to Hawaii for the first time I never thought it was going to spread everywhere in the world and take over I mean I'm glad that it did because I actually think it's the most hopeful thing that you know, that we can look at in terms of being a catalyst for this global consciousness change. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, I, I don't worry so much. I, uh, you know, I used, I don't think we're going to destroy the Earth. I think that Earth is, you know, Gaia, if you want to think of it in that terms, you know, this feminine entity that is the living earth. Mm. I mean, Gaia's one tough bitch, you know. <laughs> She's going to be around for a long time because her, her time frame it works out in 
on scales of millions and hundreds of millions of years. Yeah. Life is going to survive. Our species, however, is much more fragile. And, yeah. you know, we may not make it because, you know, the living system that it is to be coherent and to be functional, it has ways of getting rid of these disruptive species. <coughs> you know, just like a dog will shake the fleas off its back, you know, the planet can do this too. And it has many times. Oh, yeah. So we're not, uh, you know, we're not, uh, we're not uh, uh, in any way invulnerable to this. I like to think, I like, to, <coughs> excuse me, oh, sorry. I'd like to think of it, Dennis, is like um, with these ayahuasca, ayahuasca and um, the messages that were being sent. And I like to think of it as like, Earth doesn't want to get rid of us, but it wants to just make us understand that like, the whole waking it up process, like you said. And I think something, what I was actually wanting to ask you, Dennis, was the more that we actually use the, um, these different like virtual realities and different expansiveness in our own minds, are we going to um, evolve like to the capability of like understanding the plants with it? with their deeper message like are we going to actually see the whole message more clearly because we're getting access to these different virtual realities in our minds well yes i think so i mean that's what these shamanic traditions are really about you know and now that is being kind of spreading into the global culture and these are older traditions but they're evolving into something newer and more contemporary but i think it i think if I understand your question correctly, we have to look to the more, uh, you know, ancient shamanic traditions because these people have been doing this for a long time, you know, and so we shouldn't dismiss that. They have understood a lot about how uh, how uh, you do this. So, <clears throat> but then, you know, it, it's an ongoing thing. It's a process of co-evolution. I agree with you with what you say. I don't think the plant, the plants, and the the you know the plants and the community of species that we can loosely label Gaia. I don't think they really want to get rid of us. They would prefer not. They would they would prefer that we wake up because you know we're both the most dangerous thing to come along in four and a half billion years or 3.8 billion years of evolution were also the most promising thing yeah you know because we have the potential to maybe escape from the cradle if we don't destroy it first yeah. i think that's part of life's agenda but what we understand what you know is to spread because it likes to spread so why should it be limited to the planet on yeah. the other hand, Gaia yeah, is perfectly capable of saying, well, you know, that was an experiment that didn't work. These clown monkeys have been around for, you know, five million years or so, and they're clearly not doing it. So, okay, you know, shit can that experiment. We've get, still got, you know, another billion years or so to find a better solution. I hope it doesn't come to that. You know, I hope yeah. that we can wake up and sort of be the the catalyst that can actually break out of the terrestrial, you know, ecosystem, the solar system or whatever, and do what we, uh, I think people have an intuition that human destiny is in the stars, you know. Um, but we should not, you know, if we leave the earth, we should leave behind a park, a, uh, you know, a beautiful ecosystem not a, a toxic waste dump yeah, you know there's no reason why we can't there's no reason the earth, earth shouldn't be healthy uh, for you know the next four or five billion years until finally the sun you know does whatever it does and by that time it won't matter hopefully but Gaia has a way of responding to these things because it tends toward homeostasis and if we're so disruptive that we're just mucking everything up we're destroying these homeostatic feedback mechanisms that keep it all stable you know the planet will respond and uh, but hopefully we'll wake up before that 
Yeah, definitely. I like Dennis. I really absolutely loved how you said and you, you were touching on how maybe the planet like understand like. Well, sorry, this is what I was thinking anyway. You sort of touched on this, but this is what I was thinking in my mind as well. Is maybe the planet understands that the, the planet sorry understands that it needs the humans to evolve as well to that next level. Yeah. And I think that's a I think that's a beautiful thing because if that connection comes together, in in us as human beings on this planet realize we need the planet as much as the planet needs us. That could just be a beautiful, magnificent, like like a, it could be like a like a um, like a caterpillar turning a butterfly. It could be that sort of effect. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean that that is that is the most hopeful scenario, you know. And I'm not giving up. I mean, we have to realize that, you know, sometimes we get so bogged down in human affairs and our stupidity and our politics and you know geopolitics and all this stuff you know that it's hard to see the forest for the trees you know we get so close to the trees and it's like well you know where it's possible to get very depressed about it like so okay trump gets elected so now we may have to put up with these clowns for eight years well eight years is a really tiny slice of time in terms of the way the planet works you know it works it out in in terms of hundreds of thousands millions and even tens and hundreds of millions of years that's not a time frame that we're comfortable with you know our our time is 70 or 80 years at most or if we're lucky you know so, but it's but it's important to keep that perspective you know that uh, what we're seeing now is uh I mean, and as depressing as it is, hopefully it's just a glitch. You know, it's just a glitch in the evolution of life. The the critical thing is, the thing that is worrisome is that the decisions and the impact that we're having on the planet now, you know, we're faced with some critical decisions. The planet will survive, but the question is, you know, some of the decisions we make might change the way it works, uh, you know. Yeah. I don't think life will become extinct, but I think that conditions on the surface of the planet could become quite uncomfortable for for we monkeys. You yeah. know? <laughs> <clears throat> and why should it be? It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I don't know, definitely Dennis, I talk completely agree. But Dennis, something I want to ask you as well. Do you actually think that um maybe maybe plants have do you, do you know think would you think if like plants have other messages as well? They have what? Other messages, sorry. Other messages. Well, yeah, I mean, all kinds of messages. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that's, I mean, I, we're, we talk about the message of the plants is mostly we're talking about, you know, the psychedelic plants as, as, plant, as you know, plant teachers. But really, it, that's just part. I mean, think about how much we depend on plants. You know, everything that, I mean, aside from the fact that through photosynthesis, bringing the energy of the sun into this biosphere, performing this little chemical miracle that allows it to change water or to, to change carbon dioxide, uh, into complex organic compounds and sequester CO2 out of the atmosphere at the same time and release oxygen, which happens to be convenient for us, you know, because we breathe oxygen. So the plants are keeping the system humming, basically. I mean, they are everything else that's not photosynthesis, not photosynthetic, that doesn't make its own food is you know, pretty much a parasite on plants. And, uh, you know, the plants could get along fine without us. <clears throat> um, not entirely. I mean, insects are a good example. Plants are, you know, that's another complex uh, symbiotic relationship uh, since insects are involved in the pollination of flowering plants, at least. That's all chemically mediated through these chemical messengers. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely, Dennis. Yeah. Before, so we we could go on forever, gentlemen. But I, I, I have to, I have to uh, end it here. I'm afraid. All right, no problem. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah Dennis. Just like I said, like honestly, like thank you again for giving us your time. And 
we've we still got uh, so much more to expand on, but uh, hopefully we can get you on again and really dive deeper into that incredible brain of yours. And just, like, just <laughs> well, thank you again so much, Dennis. Yeah. Honestly, it truly was an honor. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, we can absolutely circle back on it. You know, these podcasts are great, but they they only pat, scratch the surface in some some ways. But yeah, uh, always always happy to talk to you. So uh, we'll we'll put it on the shelf. The rest of it, yeah, till def- the next time. Yeah, yeah, definitely till the next time. It'll definitely be next time. Thank you, Dennis. You're most welcome. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate you guys taking time out your day to listen and stretch your mind. And a big thank you again to Dennis for giving us his time. And please check out Dennis's website, thebrotherhoodofascreamandbiss.com. And please don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast as it really helps more people find this thing. And please tell your friends about the podcast. And please help us out by sharing the episodes each week on your social media pages. And also, please don't forget to check out the new little trailers that I've started creating for each episode. And it would also be amazing if you could share them too. Anyway, we'll catch you guys next week in the next episode. Peace.